Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Well, man, I got to be honest. I thought I, I thought my outfit turned out pretty good this morning, and then I saw the farmhouse guys, and now I'm insecure. So, like seven rows of dudes who look amazing. Uh, hey, uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Austin, one of the pastors here. Grateful to be with you guys this morning. I'm super stoked. Uh, I feel like a sermon's always going to be better once it's read beforehand in Portuguese. Like, can we just be honest? Like, that might be a universal truth. Anyways, hey, here's here's intro. Um, have you noticed how, like, obsessed we are with surprising growth? Like, we freak out about surprising growth. We love it. Um, so here's a picture of a guy named Nusseret. Um, he... Uh, Grew up in the Middle East. Um, he stopped formal education at about five years old, and um, uh, that was kind of that was kind of it. And uh, had continued kind of from a lower income family. Went through. He ended up actually becoming a apprentice uh, chef under. Um, uh, under other chefs and learned and grew and knew how to cook things. It was great. Ended up actually uh, growing and starting his own uh, restaurant. So that was awesome. He's stoked for it. He's leading it. That's kind of normal. He's just doing his thing. In 2017, Nasseret, this guy, releases a viral video. It was 26 seconds. I don't think he released it, but it was about him, of him salting meat like this, okay? And he became a sensation. It was like 16 million views in the first 24 hours just because of the way he salted his meat off his forearm. It's crazy. Today, Nasseret has 15 million, or not, sorry, 15 worldwide restaurants. He has 40 million Instagram followers, and he's worth $60 million, that's his story. Pretty surprising, right? Here's my brother, Caden. This is when he was 16 and my sister, Bailey. Or sorry, I think he was a 14 or 15. And Caden uh, just turned uh, uh, 18 like a couple weeks ago. But Caden, this is how I always remember Caden. Like small, thin. Like I just love wrestling him down, messing with him. He couldn't, you know, if there's everything, anything I wanted, I'd just take it from him, you know. But a couple years ago, he discovered a protein shake. And he discovered a gym and some health. And this is Caden now. Okay, just to be clear, just to be clear, he can beat me up, okay? I don't take anything from him anymore, okay? Uh, and, and, it, but this, and so any of my people from McCook or that have known Caden, they're like, I can't even recognize him. I don't even know who he is. Like, he's crazy. He's won gold medals and uh, weightlifting all over. Like, he's just, it's incredible to see how he's grown. Surprising growth. The last person I want to show you is Eric Finman. Um, now, Eric, about 10 years ago, he was 12 years old. He gathered all the money that he had from birthdays and Christmases and um, mowing and chores and whatever else. He had about $1,000. And he invested into this thing called Bitcoin. 10 years ago. It was worth about, I think a Bitcoin was about $2 at that time. Today it's worth about 63 or 64,000 per Bitcoin. And so he is now worth, that $1,000 investment has turned into $26 million. Eric Finman, 11-year-old, 12-year-old boy, now 10 years later, is a multi-millionaire, right? We love surprising growth. And in our verses today, Jesus draws our attention to the surprising growth of the kingdom. And to be clear, this isn't gradual, conservative, 3 percent return on investment. No, Jesus' kingdom shows us um, that it starts unimpressive 
and ends unimaginable, that once his kingdom is unleashed, it is unstoppable. Far more mind-blowing, by the way, than a Turkish chef that uniquely salts his steak and blows up to be one of the most famous chefs in the world. Far more shocking than a 14-year-old transforming into a bodybuilder in a couple years. Far more surprising than a 12-year-old investing $1,000 and 10 years later being worth $26 million. The kingdom smart starts small. It is subtle, and then it shocks, and it surprises. But my question for us this morning is if we're so obsessed, if we're so intrigued, if we're so enamored by the surprising growth of this world, why are we so bored and so unamused with the growth of the kingdom of God, right? Like we check our investments each week and make sure they're growing. We love stories on social media about growth. We look up the value of our house to see if it's grown. We, 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 we mark the door to see as our kids grow each year. Um, we, we celebrate economic growth. Um, but if God's kingdom blows all of them out of the water, right? If it's even more thrilling, then why don't we give more time to celebrate God's kingdom? Why don't we focus on it more? Why don't we invest in it more? Maybe it's because we don't know the whole story. We just don't know where the kingdom started and where it is now. Maybe we just don't care. Or maybe we just haven't been challenged to think about it. Either way, Jesus explains in these short verses, in these short little parable metaphor, what the kingdom of God is like. And I'm praying that as we leave here today, our hearts are bursting with excitement and joy and shock that we get invited into the surprising growth of God's kingdom. Amen? So that's where we're at. Open up your Bibles, Luke chapter 13 with a way less cooler non-accent. I'm going to read these two verses, 18 and 19. Um, uh, He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed into the garden, and it grew, and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in it. First point is unimpressive seed, unimaginable tree unimpressive seed, unimaginable tree. So first part of this, looking at the unimpressive seed. Now, Jesus' big question in these verses that he's answering in both of these parables is what is the kingdom of God like? And now, if I were just to ask you and say, hey, imagine you're sitting across from someone who has no idea about the Bible, no idea about Jesus, no idea about the kingdom. And I I said, creatively think of something tangible and practical that you can explain to them to understand what God's kingdom is like. What would you use? Let's just say maybe a plant or a fruit or something. What would you choose to explain and uniquely explain God's kingdom? Well, I got to go to Cambodia about a few few years ago and to teach um, a multiplication conference for church leaders on church planting and stuff like that. It was awesome. But what was crazy was about 300 Cambodian church leaders from all over that came into this. And, um, and they're writing mopeds that are meant for one person, but they got four people on them. I'm like, that, like, number one, I want to learn how to do that. I, you know, Sky, Justin, whoever you in, Brett. Uh, but so they're going, but on, not even more impressive than that was that on the backs, they had these like humongous green things, these like fruit plant-like things. I think we have a picture. And, um, and so I'm like, what is this? That. And it's actually called jackfruit, and it's incredibly impressive. Now, we opened that thing up. You can kind of see a picture of it open, too. On this. They're massive. And it was delicious. It was unlike anything I'd ever tasted. And not only was it great tasting, but it's actually become one of the fastest growing meat substitutes in the world. It's a great source of vitamin C and potassium and fiber and protein. It's like a superfood. How many of you guys have had jackfruit before? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so if 
I'm trying to explain the kingdom of God as some sort of plant or some sort of, uh, sort of fruit, I'm probably going to use jackfruit, okay? It's the most impressive fruit I've ever seen. I think God's kingdom is beneficial, so is jackfruit. I think God's kingdom is big and expansive and wide, and this thing is large. I think God's kingdom is sweet, and it's, and it's enjoyable, and it's satisfying, so is jackfruit, right? What metaphor would you use to describe God's kingdom? Now, of all the plants and all the seeds, and all the fruit, and all the vegetables that Jesus could have chosen, he decides on a mustard seed. One of the tiniest, least impressive seeds in the entire seed kingdom. In fact, I'd go so as far as to say, if Jesus never mentioned mustard seeds, 99% of us would not even know what a mustard seed is, okay? It doesn't grow particularly fast, or produce really life-changing stuff, remember, Jesus created everything. Every seed, every fruit, every animal, every species, every star, things we haven't even discovered yet. And of the infinite options he had, he chooses an ordinary, simple, unimpressive mustard seed. Why? Because that is what his kingdom is like. There's an undeniable thread in the biblical narrative, in this arch, this, this thread that God chooses the unimpressive, the overlooked, the un, unqualified, the mustard seed, right? Like all over the Bible, and I want to show you. See, if you look at verse um, 19, it, the, the key verb there is that the man sowed it into the garden. The action of sowing is to choose it, to plant it with a specific reason. And so I just want to track you through a biblical narrative of God choosing the unimpressive. In Genesis 15, he goes to Abraham, Father Abraham, many sons, many sons had fought, you know, like the whole thing. He chooses him and says, hey, dude, you are going to be the father of many nations. And in Genesis 15, he goes, look up at the stars. Do you see how many there are? You're going to have that many descendants. Oh, by the way, Abraham wasn't even a dad yet. Like, like, and then when he actually had Isaac, who would fulfill that promise that God was making in Genesis 12 and 15, he would be 100 years old. I've never seen a 100-year-old dad, okay? Like, like a fresh dad, and, you know, just like, it's a boy. You know, I've never seen that picture, you know? Maybe triple great-grandpa, I don't know. But, like, that's when it happened. So he chooses this old and likely guy that doesn't have kids that you're going to have this numerous generations come from you. He chooses Moses in Exodus 3 and 4, and he says, hey, you are going to take the king. You're, you're going to go into Egypt, and you're going to free my people from slavery. Moses keeps pushing back, keep pushing back. God's like, here's what you're going to tell Pharaoh. Here's what you're going to say in front of one of the most powerful people in the world. And Moses is like, I'm not eloquent in Exodus 4.10. I, I, I'm slow to speak. I have, I have a stutter. And God goes, yeah, I'm, I'm going to use you. To speak on behalf of people, he's going to use stuttering Moses. Then he chooses Israel as his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, he explains, I didn't choose you uh, because you were big. In fact, he says, you were the fewest of all peoples. He chooses the fewest, not the greatest. He chooses Gideon in Judges chapter 6. He goes, hey, you're going to go lead and fight the Midianites, this humongous army. And Gideon goes, I'm the young, I'm from the weakest clan, and I'm the youngest or the least in my family. And then, by the way, that's unimpressive. But then when he goes, God dwindles his army down to 300 people to go fight like probably a million Midianites. It's insane. Oh, choosing David. We love David and Goliath, right? It's a crazy story. Samuel, this prophet, goes into Bethlehem and to uh, a guy named Jesse, which was David's dad. He goes, hey, I want to anoint one of your sons. And Jesse goes, proudly presents his sons. Here they are. And Samuel goes, no, 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 no. And he goes, do you have any more sons? And he's like, oh, gosh, I did forget about little David, but I don't think that... Oh, yeah, let's go check, you know. And David, this, his dad didn't even think he was 
and that's who God chooses. Well, think about the disciples. In Acts 4, uh, the disciples are growing. The church is moving. Crazy things are happening. In 4 verse 13 uh, of Acts, it says that they noticed that they were common, uneducated men. Think about God choosing us in the room, unimpressive. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27, 28, he says, Not many of you were no- of noble birth. Not many of you were wise according to the world. I chose what's despised and foolish and weak and low. Oh, and the crescendo expression of this is Jesus. Like, a born of a poor virgin teenage mom, and not in an amazing palace, but in a tiny little dirty manger, not from a big influential city, but from a small village of Nazareth with about, with about 500 people. He didn't even do anything until he was 30 years old. And then when he does do something, he picks a ragtag team of young disciples that were overlooked and not chosen. And then Jesus goes and he preaches to thousands and all these miracles. But at the end of his life on the cross, there's only a few people around him that actually believe in him or follow him. And then after his resurrection, he only meets with 500 followers. Like that, that's the size of his expanse. It's almost like God refuses to use anything other than the unimpressive. Like that, that he's just resilient towards that. Why? Well, if you look back at 1 Corinthians 1, the thing where he says, not many of you have noble birth and wise and whatever, he finishes that in verse 29 saying, so that no one may boast. God wants you to know in his mustard seed kingdom that he's the only impressive one, that he does the work, that he gives the growth, that he gets the glory. And then look what he does from that. If you look at the end of verse 19, he goes, takes this mustard seed and it says, and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So it starts as an unimpressive seed and it becomes an unimaginable tree. That tiny, unimpressive seed grows into a tree. It's shocking, right? Now, the expansive growth of a small seed into a tree. It's, I mean, just even in general, if you think about it, like, that's crazy. And this is what Jesus says his kingdom is like. Small to big, unimpressive to unimaginable. And it shatters expectations. But I want to point out that the expansive, surprising, unexpected, unimaginable growth isn't just for the sake of shock. It is for the sake of shock. But not only that. If it was just for the sake of shock, he would have ended his parable with explaining that a tiny seed grew into a lush tree, but he doesn't. He says that the tree becomes big enough to house birds in its branches. That's the byproduct of the unimaginable growth. And this actually refers back to Ezekiel chapter 17, and I'll, I'll read this for you. Ezekiel 17, verses 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest." Almost the same exact language with God planting a tree that would house birds. But Jesus shatters even that expectation by not using the sprig of a noble cedar tree, but instead he uses a tiny mustard seed. Like, and in the same way, Jesus doesn't come as a mighty military Messiah who's going to help Israel rule the world. No, he comes as a lowly, simple, unimpressive mustard seed. But despite appearances and expectations, this tree will shelter birds of every sort. This is a promise that the kingdom of God includes all types of people. 
people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, people that grew up in church and people who did it, people who blew it big time and people who worked hard to keep their life together, uh, people who come to know Jesus early in life and people who come to know Jesus later in life, the rich, the poor, every ethnicity, this is what God's kingdom is like. This is who this mustard seed uh, growing into a tree invites into this kingdom, unimpressive seed, unimaginable tree. And in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, this is what this metaphorical tree actually is going to look like. Here's the words of John Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe, from all nations and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, what does this mean for you? Um, How should this change move you, uh, uh, impact your life. This kingdom involves you, like simple, normal, ordinary you. It includes the small stay-at-home, or I'm sorry, it includes the stay-at-home mom changing diapers and the college student that changed their major three times. It includes the 60-year-old approaching retirement wondering what's next and the hungry business professional charging onto the next project. It includes the intern at the bottom of the totem pole and the CEO in the top corner office. It includes the young adult trying to figure out um, how to change your oil and the young couple trying to figure out how to fix your dishwasher. The kingdom of God includes you and I. Have you realized that? Have you just sat and thought like this is all, this kingdom is expressed through you as well? Have you leaned into that? Are you distracted in the stands? Are you watching unenthusiastically on the bench? Or are you in the game, grateful that God has invited you to be a part of his unimaginable kingdom through unimpressive means. Five years ago, I went to my friend Trent and Emily's wedding. They're part of our church now, and, um, and I was, it was the rehearsal dinner. Kristen and I drove down from Omaha. True story, because we live in Omaha. We said, thank God we don't live in Lincoln. Because let me just talk about this. When we got into Lincoln, we looked at our GPS, and it was still 20 minutes to the South Laszlo's. How are you in a city and you're still, like Omaha is way bigger and you can get anywhere in 15 minutes. We were just, it, was, it was not a good moment for my soul, right? But, so we're driving, we get there. And I was singing in the wedding and I was in the wedding and my old friend Mozart Dixon um, was, was officiating the wedding. And so him and I are connecting. We're at dinner, uh, Kristen and Colleen, we're connecting, having a blast. And Mo and I took this picture. At the time of this picture, I was the worship director at City Light Omaha and Mo was a young adult pastor here at a church in Lincoln. And we sent, took this picture and sent it to Chris. Chris Haruska, who's the lead pastor of City Light Omaha, and we said, City Light Lincoln, 2018. It was 2016, the beginning of it, it was March. And we sent this picture. It was 99.9% a joke with a 0.1% of a sliver of reality. Okay, like maybe, I don't know. Four days after that picture was taken, um, the very first city group in Lincoln uh, uh, met. Ben and Katie Oltman, Mozart and Colleen Dixon, Nick and Alicia Sherrill, Seth and Julie Brown, the eight of them met. The eight of them had a shared vision and, and love for City Light, but were an hour away from the closest one. And so they, they're great people, by the way, but they're very normal and fairly unimpressive, especially Ben, okay? And, um, and so they gathered, they opened up their Bibles and prayed, and they asked God to do something someday, a new work in Lincoln, Two months after that original picture was taken and after that group gathered, we had our very first uh, um, prayer gathering. I think we have a picture of it. It was in Destinations Coffee. Um, That's it, about 40 people. I see Britt in there. Betsy's in there. There's some OGs in there for sure. 
40 people gathered and just said, Jesus, we don't know what you're doing. Would you do a new work here in Lincoln? Um, Two months after that picture was taken, we had our very first gathering in this building that was given to us for free. Over, Over 300 people showed up that very first Sunday. Five years later today, there are uh, three more churches that have planted in two different states. 400 people have been baptized among the four churches. So here's a picture of North. If we've got it, Sid. Um, uh, or that's, yeah, so but that's FOCO. That's Fort Collins. So Andrew and Phil and Rachel and Mike and Jenna, they're killing it there over out in Fort Collins. Do we switch back? Yeah. And then we got, let's go south maybe next. Yeah, they're south. Uh, Ricky and Alex and... Um, they're uh, preaching Jesus, and it's amazing to see. And then we got North, who just got a free building. And um, um, they're, that's Nate and Ben and Veronica. And they're just, I mean, it's amazing to see. It's, and by the way, five years ago, City Light Lincoln, 2018. You know, like, who would have thought? Like, two, I mean, it's just, it's crazy, right? Un- unpressive, unimaginable. Why? Because that's what God does. That's what his kingdom is like. If old Abraham and stuttering Moses and small Israel and young David and scared Gideon and uneducated disciples and the city light, show, city light story show us anything, it's that God does not work the way the world works. He doesn't choose the cream of the crop. He doesn't pick the best and brightest. He doesn't go the conventional route. He doesn't choose the path of least resistance. He doesn't go with the conservative bet. No, he sovereignly gambles on the unimpressive and does the unimaginable. That's who he is. That's how good God is. That's the way his king, this king runs his kingdom. And if that weren't enough, Jesus gives us another example of what his kingdom is like. Um, Look at 20 and 21. Now, and again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in the three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Uh, Unimpressive seed, unimaginable tree. Next one is unleashing leaven, unstoppable heaven. Right, so this first piece of un- unleashing leaven. Um, now you add leaven to dough um, or or flour, like yeast, and that's actually what makes it rise and be fluffy. And Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like uh, leaven that a woman hid into flour. Now that verb hid simply means that she mixed this leaven into three measures of flour, which is about fifty pounds of it. Okay, so it's a ton of flour. But the key here that Jesus is drawing out is that a an unimpressive, insignificant amount, an extremely small ratio of leaven was mixed into a large amount of flour, ridiculously unproportionate. So again, you get that same small to big essence. The insignificant amount of leaven had a significant effect on a large amount of flour. See, the beauty of leaven is that a little bit goes a long ways. And you're getting that same theme from the seed in the tree, right? An, un, um, an unimpressive amount had an unimaginable impact. This is communicating the same thing as the mustard seed in the tree that houses birds. But the leaven shows us another way the kingdom of God surprisingly grows. See, the seed... Um, is, has an outward expansive impact, right? It, it grew, it blossomed, there's trees in it, whatever, birds in it, whatever, where the leaven has an inward pervasive influence, right? If you're looking to outward expansive impact and an inward pervasive influence. See, the last time we heard about leaven was just a page or two back in your Bible in Luke chapter 12. And Jesus says, beware, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So it's a little bit of whiplash, right? If you're reading your Bible through Luke 12 and you get to Luke 13, you're like, huh. So you just compared leaven to evil, and now you're comparing leaven to the kingdom, 
I'm a little bit confused. Well, what he's saying is the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. And what he's talking about is the, in, the inevitable influence of leaven. Whatever leaven is in your life, you have something, and it's inevitably influencing you. And he's saying for the Pharisees, the inevitable influence of leaven was hypocrisy, and it was impacting everybody. It was making them hide their weaknesses. It was, make them, it was making them embellish their strengths. It was making them look down on people. It was puffing them up. That was the inevitable influence of hypocrisy in their life, of the leaven. Whereas the same thing is true with the kingdom of God and the things of Jesus. There is an inevitable influence of, of, of leaven in our lives. Um, once it's unleashed, it's unstoppable. Once it's mixed in, it's going to mess things up. It will rise. And the leaven of God's kingdom, and contrary to the hypocrisy, is inexhaustible grace and pure holiness and, and radical love and selfless humility. The leaven of God, the kingdom of God is everything of Jesus. But that inevitable influence of this insignificant leaven only comes after being mixed into the flour, Right? That's the only way it happens is being mixed in. Now, I hear people use uh, language of secular and sacred all the time um, as a means to identify and categorize the things that we do or, or places we're in, secular and sacred. And so um, this is operating on the assumption that church work is sacred and driving a bus is secular. That city group is sacred, but going to the gym is secular. That serving on Sundays is sacred, but sitting in Chipotle for lunch is secular. The passion of Christ is sacred, but parks and rec is secular. And I think that this ideology of sacred and secular divide has absolutely crippled the church. See, if we pigeonhole God into only speaking, only working, only moving when we're in our identified sacred places or doing our identified sacred things, we have missed his kingdom entirely. See, the surprising growth of the kingdom of God comes when they're mixed together. When the leaven gets into the flour. I worked at a company in sales uh, uh, before I started working full-time in the church, and it was one of the most fruitful seasons of my life. Uh, I was constantly surrounded by people who didn't know Jesus, and I loved it. Now, Definitely there was people who knew Jesus there, but at large, a lot of people who didn't know Jesus. And guys would consistently, uh, the guys would consistently invite me to go to strip clubs with them. And when they kept pressing, kept asking, and I kept saying no, they're like, why? Well, you want to have it? Like, all right, all right, so let me tell you one. God created those women beautifully, and they were not meant to be objectified by men. Number two, those women are valuable beyond belief, so much so that uh, so much more than a few crinkled up dollars that God gave his own life. He gave his own son for these women. Um, I told them, whatever they're looking for, for satisfaction in that strip club, Jesus offers it actually better, truer, and more sustaining. And that although that would be dishonoring to God, that he still offers them free grace if they would repent and turn to him. I got to preach the gospel. It was crazy. God was making amazing stories through my time there. And, uh, and one of the hardest parts about my job now, to be honest, is that I don't naturally rub shoulders with people who don't believe in Jesus. Like my, my job is to lead the 20 plus people on our staff team and you, hundreds of people. And most of you are Christians, you know what I mean? Or some of you, I don't know exactly where you're at. But, um, but, but, but the members for sure of our church, right? And, the, and so it's like I'm interacting with solid Christians on a daily basis. And I don't have my desk where I have non-believers across from me or around me. I don't have people on our staff inviting me to a strip club, right? And, and so our, um, yeah, definitely, definitely not. But um, <laughs> Uh, 
our city group did this thing. It's called an Oikos map. And it's kind of like these, these, it's like a circle and you have your name. And then you have a few other like little lines and circles around that of people in your life um, that don't know Jesus that you could share the gospel with. And then from those people, then you write another four people around them that they don't know Jesus. And that, you know, and that you, you think of the exponential impact. If I impact, you know, uh, Sarah, and then she goes and impacts uh, um, Alyssa and, and this and this and that. And you go, wow, this would be crazy if I led her to Christ. Then she led this and you think of this huge growth. And so our city group did it and our staff team did it. Um, but our city group did it and people just started writing like crazy. And I, I'm embarrassed to, and most of them were like, um, you know, people they worked with or, 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 or people they went to school with or whatever. And I'm really embarrassed to say this, but I, it was really difficult for me to think of names of non-believers in my life. Um, and I remember just kind of sitting there just feeling kind of guilty and, I don't know, just ashamed of like, why don't I have, you know, more people? And I had two neighbors and some family members, and that was about it. But if you track with that logic, a lot of people think my work is sacred. But the people who have identified secular jobs are the ones who are scribbling names like crazy of missional opportunity. You get what I'm saying? Salespeople dental students, accountants, engineers, teachers, they were jotting names like crazy. Here's my point, is that when you stop dividing sacred and secular, the leaven of the kingdom is unleashed. When you start to see your work as worship to Jesus, the kingdom's inevitable influence starts to rise. You don't have a secular job. You don't attend a secular class. You don't go to a secular sports event. You don't eat at a secular restaurant. They can all be sacred. They can all be opportunities to mix the leaven of God's kingdom into the flower of this world. And Jesus explains this this concept in John 17, verses 15 through 18. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of this world, just as I'm not of this world. And so sanctify them in in the truth. Your word is the truth. Father, as you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. So, Christian, if you want to be a part of the surprising growth of God's kingdom, you cannot isolate in Christian bubbles. You mix into the world, not conforming to it, but inevitably influencing it through God's commitment to grow his kingdom in unimaginable ways through unimpressive means. But can we just address the elephant in the room? Like, we haven't talked about this yet. Does it really seem like God's kingdom is growing? Like, is it okay to ask that? 10,000 churches close their doors every year in America. We're politically as divided as I've ever seen. I'm only about 30, you know, but still. There's racial tension and confusion. There's violence and conflict and suffering everywhere. COVID is still around after almost two years. Didn't think that was going to happen. Not as smart again. Uh, There are people distorting the gospel Our culture is progressively becoming post-Christian, post-modern. By the way, there are 3 billion people in 7,000 people groups who have zero access to the gospel right now in the internet age where anything can get anywhere. What seems more surprising, if I'm being honest, what seems more surprising than the growth of God's kingdom is the grim state of our world, right? But look at the end of verse 21 and get some hope in here. He goes, right? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, the last phrase, until it was all leavened. Until it was all leavened. Um, this is 
unstoppable heaven, right? Like the God's gonna do what he wants to do. This is a promise that Jesus' kingdom is unstoppable. The leaven will progressively permeate through all of the flour. It will happen. And so I wanna be clear here, very clear theologically, this does not teach triumphalism. This does not teach triumphalism, which is the idea that everything will slowly become more Christianized. So our government and our countries and our culture, that is not the promise. And the rest of the Bible is very clear that there will always be a stark tension between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Um, What this is promising, though, is that God will accomplish his purposes. That's what this is saying. And so that his kingdom will inevitably and surprisingly grow, that no matter what president gets elected or what cultural issue rises to prominence, what laws are passed, what pandemic spreads, what counterfeits the gospel pop up, the leaven of God's kingdom will inevitably rise. It's unstoppable. And so take courage in Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 18, where he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Every baptism is proof of that. The five last week, that's proof of it. Every time we gather and we sing and we, and, we, and we study God's word, that's proof of that. Every city group is proof of that. Every missionary that we get to send out is proof of that. Every refugee welcomed is proof of that. Every time the gospel's presented is proof of that. Every house church around the world gathering in secret is proof of that. Oh, and by the way, in this last century, Christianity in Asia, which is one of the most persecuted continents in the world, has grown twice the rate of population. Twice the rate of population. In 1900, less than 1% of South Korea was Christians. Today, 30% of the population follows Jesus. Iran is ranked eighth worst place in the world to follow Jesus with an extreme level of persecution. The government bans conversion from Islam, imprisons those who share their faith, arrests those who attend underground churches or distribute Christian literature, and nevertheless, the church in Iran has become one of the fastest growing in the world in terms of conversion. While it's difficult to determine, like, exactly how many, because a lot of people come to know Jesus and kind of keep it a little bit secret in a small group. Um, Backed by uh, survey data, Christianity Today reported that there could be as many as a million Iranian believers. (laughs) What's the kingdom of God like? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And so I want you, I want to end by asking you to think about the seemingly unimpressive cross of Jesus a 33-year-old nomadic Jewish man in the Middle East builds a ragtag team of mostly teenage boys. Where he get, when he gets arrested, he doesn't make a grand argument pleading for his freedom. His trial isn't uh, worldwide. When he finally gets sentenced to death, his friends scatter and abandon him. Only a few women and one disciple are there at the cross. The entirety of the crowd seems against him. When he's actually drilled the cross, it wasn't even the main event. It wasn't like it was all about Jesus. There were two other crucifixions that had to happen that day, and so they were up on the cross as well. Two no-name thieves. A crucifixion just like a thousand other that they did. And nothing spectacular seemed to happen when he was on the cross, by the way. No superhuman strength to get himself down. No extraordinary resilience to stay alive longer than others have. No struggle as they drilled the nails into his wrist or his hands. Some may say that it was unimpressive as far as crucifixions go. He didn't end with an altar call where thousands came to the foot of his cross and gave their life to him and bowed to him as Lord. He just said, it's finished, and he died. That was it. Never wielded a sword, 
and, and, and fought a victorious battle against the multitudes, never unraveled a map and plotted out an uprising attack. This 33-year-old nomadic Jewish man from the Middle East just died, which at the moment probably seemed extremely unimpressive, right? Like I have to believe that his enemies were watching in anticipation for him to pull off another miracle, and they were, and he just dies. And, and maybe they just kind of shrugged their shoulders in relief, but also a letdown that the cross wasn't more thrilling. But at that seemingly unimpressive death on the cross, Jesus was paying the penalty for the sin you and I committed. Jesus was drinking his father's cup of wrath that should have drowned us. He was trading places as our gracious substitute underneath the unimpressive cross was the unimaginable conquering of sin and death and Satan. The droplet of the cross has become a tidal wave washing billions of sinners by grace from all around the world. The tiny, unimpressive mustard seed of the cross has grown into a tree that is reaching all peoples in all nations and all languages. That unimpressive death on the cross flipped the world upside down. And that 33-year-old nomadic Jewish man from the Middle East that died on an unimpressive cross has made an unimaginable impact all over and specifically to Lincoln, Nebraska this morning. His kingdom seems unimpressive, but its spread is unimaginable. And it has been unleashed, and I'm telling you, it's unstoppable. And wherever you're at, whatever you've done, whoever you've thought Jesus to be, this is an invitation this morning to bow your knee to him as king, to bow your knee to him as savior. You can finally give in to him chasing you down. You can finally give up trying to save yourself. You can finally rest from trying to build your crumbling kingdom. And you can come to Jesus today by faith, freely. And if you have come to know Jesus, if you're a part of his kingdom, you need to explode and rejoice that you're a part of the mustard seed kingdom, growing into a tree that will house people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Celebrate that you're watching the leaven of the kingdom rise right in front of our eyes. Amen? Let's pray.